You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, upc.org. A precocious 10-year-old girl was talking with her grandmother, and she asked her grandma, How old are you? And she said, Oh dear, when you get to be my age, you don't count so hard, and you definitely don't reveal the number. It's my secret. And a little girl left the room, came back a few minutes later, and she said, Grandma, I know your secret. He said, I know that you are 72 years old and you, are, uh, you weigh 140 pounds. <laughs> a little bit shocked. Grandma said, how did you know that? She said, well, your purse is in the kitchen. I got your driver's license. <laughs> and I also saw that you got an F in sex. <laughs> I know. So I'm really sorry about lust on Mother's Day. But think about it. Which other of the deadly sins would you rather have? You know, wrath. Gluttony? I don't have any good options here. Less will do. And by the way, I want to thank those of you who took our Seven Deadly Sins survey. And if you didn't, there's still time. It just went up last week on our Facebook page. And uh, really interesting. I want, I want to uh, feedback some of the data that we received so you can know exactly who you're sitting next to. Um, but, you know, these are our sins. Uh, these are the dynamics of everyday life of all, for all of us. And uh, it, one interesting thing about uh, lust is the... Um, the percentage of those of us who say this is the both uh, the, the most common of the seven in society and the biggest one that I struggle with is guess guess what the percentage would be. So far, it's trending 15%. I'm thinking, what? Well, you know, you can only choose one. It doesn't mean we don't do all of them. That's but there's some others that are really attractive to us. Um, but I'm thinking 85%, really. And then I saw I dug a little bit deeper. I look at some of the other analytics, and I saw that 25% of those of us who are taking the survey so far are over 65 years old, and 60% are women. So now I'm beginning to think, okay, I don't know if that explains anything. Um, actually, I don't think it does. Because lust is something that we all struggle with, all of us. And, uh, but here's the thing that I want you to keep in mind today. When we talk about lust, we're not talking about sex. We're talking about love. I'm going to show that to you. But, the, but that's the key. It, we're talking about love. And that's why I appreciate one of you on the survey wrote something interesting. You said, when I, when I answered that I think lust is the most common in our culture and that I most observe in myself, I'm not only or even primarily thinking of lusting for another person sexually. I'm thinking of lusting after something or someone other than who we are or what, what circumstances we're in. I think we lust after a balanced life or success at work or a particular body type. And these lusts drive us, and the person writes, myself included, to perfectionism, workaholism, unhealthy eating, or even exercise habits. Lust is this craving for something that I want to suggest is really love, but that we grab at it like we're grabbing for water and grab a, a mirage instead. We're looking for satisfaction in something. We don't know what it is. Maybe it looks like love, but it's really not when it's lust. So Woody Allen says this in Annie Hall, don't knock masturbation, it's sex with someone I love. You know, And I think that's true, except that it's a party for one. And, uh, and I'm not sure it's very helpful when your love curves in on yourself. And that's, the, by the way, Martin Luther's definition of sin is love uh, curved in, the, uh, the self curved in on itself. Lust, uh, lust is a tease. 
And we're going to take a case study approach when we look at lust today. In fact, all the seven deadly sins will be using a case study approach. We'll be looking at these Old Testament narratives. We picked seven of them. And they're scary stories sometimes. Sometimes they're very unfamiliar. But here's what they do. They kind of make the problem really visible by making it extreme and very dramatic. And we're going to look at the dynamics in those texts. But what we're really looking for is grace. The grace of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Because remember, we said, because Jesus is risen, we're in the enviable position of not having to take our sin more seriously than our Savior. That's the good news of this Easter season as we look at these things. So our text this morning is 2 Samuel chapter 13. And I would encourage you to open a Bible to it. I'm going to read it for us because it's sort of a long text and it's a troubling text. And I want to do the reading, but... I'd like for you to keep it open because I'm going to refer back to it as we look at the dynamics uh, later. And this morning, on page 250 of the Pew Bible, I'm going to give you a definition for lust. I'm going to help you discover in this text the dynamics of lust. And then I'm going to invite you to see the disruption of our Savior. Definition, dynamics, and disruption. Listen carefully as I read this text. When when I'm done reading, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord, so that if you believe it, you can say, thanks be to God. It's God's word. Some time passed. David's son, Absalom, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. And David's son, Amnon, their half-brothers, fell in love with her, his half-sister, Tamar. Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin, which means a woman of marriageable age in this context. And it seemed impossible for Amnon to do anything to her or for her. But Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of David's brother Shimei. That's, his cousin, that's, that's Amnon's cousin. And Jonadab was a very crafty man. He said to Amnon, O son of the king, why are you so haggard morning after morning? Will you not tell me? And Amnon said to him, his cousin Jonadab, I I love Tamar, uh, my brother Absalom's sister. Jonadab said to him, lie down in your bed and pretend to be ill. And when your father comes to see you, that's David the king, say to him, let my sister Tamar come and give me something to eat and prepare the food in my sight so that I may see it and eat it from her hand. So Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. And when the king came to see him, Amnon said to David, please let my sister Tamar come and make a couple of cakes in my sight so that I may eat from her hand. And then David sent home to Tamar, saying, Go to your brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him. So Tamar went to her brother, Amnon's house, where he was lying down. She took dough, kneaded it, made cakes in his sight, and baked the cakes. Then she took the pan and set them out before him, but he refused to eat. Amnon said, Send everyone from me. So everyone went out from him. Then Amnon said to Tamar, bring the food into the chamber. This is a a sleeping area, maybe an alcove in the room. So that I may eat from your hand. So Tamar took the cakes she had made and brought them into the chamber to Amnon, her brother. But when she brought them near to eat, to him to eat, 
he took hold of her and said to her, Come lie with me, my sister. She answered him, No, my brother, do not force me, for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do anything so vile. As for me, where could I carry my shame? And as for you, you would be one of, as one of the scoundrels in Israel. Now, therefore, I beg you, speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. At that time, it was against the law of Moses for a half-sister and brother to marry, but we don't know if the law was being enforced at that time. Maybe David would have given them in marriage. That had been the arrangement that Abraham and Sarah had had. He will not withhold me from you, but Amnon would not listen to her, and being stronger than she, he forced her and lay with her. Then Amnon was seized with a very great loathing for her. Indeed, his loathing was even greater than the lust he had felt for her. Amnon said to her, get out. But she said to him, no, my brother, for this wrong and sending me away is greater than the other that you did to me. But Amnon would not listen to her. He called the young man who served him and said, put this woman out of my presence, bolt the door after her. Now she was wearing a long robe with sleeves, this beautiful dress. It might have been a courtship dress. For this is how the virgin daughters of the king were clothed in earlier times. So his servant put her out and bolted the door after her, but Tamar put ashes on her head. She refuses to keep the secret. And tore the long robe that she was wearing. She put her hand on her head, a sign of grief, and went away crying aloud as she went. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord stands forever. As you read that sad story, to say it's the word of the Lord is to say, God is not afraid of our lust. But I want to say something to you, a few things before we even begin to look at this. First of all, if you put this in a bigger context, you see this is the story of David's sin against Bathsheba and Uriah coming home to roost. Now his family is unwinding in the second generation. His lust and its consequences are driving the narrative at this point. And it will end, you know, here Tamar is raped, Amnon will be killed, Absalom will be a murderer, ultimately Absalom will die, and David will grieve. But I also want to invite you to put this text in the context of our lives, and I, I want to remind you, because some of you may need reminding that this is not just about lust, this story. This is about sexual violence. This is about assault. This is about patriarchy and absolute injustice. And there are a lot of us in this room that have suffered from, have suffered from those things. A lot of us in this room. And what I want you to hear, if you hear nothing else, is that God's grace is for you, too. God has grace for Amnon, God has grace for Tamar, and the truth is there is an Amnon and a Tamar in each of us. And our woundedness will find healing in the grace of Jesus Christ. That is the substrata of this whole narrative. If you back up from this chapter, you'll see that God has made a great promise to humanity through David's son. That's chapter chapter 7. Just six chapters earlier, the Davidic covenant. 
And it's that story that will bring resolution to this story and that will bring healing and resolution to our own stories. So I want you to look for that as well as the dynamics of lust. But this is a story about lust. It doesn't always end here, thankfully. But you see it. You see how powerful and destructive it is. Let's look at these uh, uh, dynamics. But first, the definition. It's fair to ask the question, what is lust anyways? It's actually a hard word to define. But if you let this text inform your definition, I want to suggest to you it's something like counterfeit love. Something that looks like love, but really isn't anything like love. Counterfeit love. That's the definition I'm working with. And I think you get that from this text. The the narrator is using irony here. And, you know, the good thing about Seattle is I don't have to tell you what irony is. Um, irony is when you say almost the opposite of what you mean. And, and the narrator does that. There's a frame he puts on the story that begins and ends with love. Just the regular old Hebrew word for love. In, in verse 1 it says, Amnon fell in love, or literally Amnon loved her. That's Tamar. And then at the end we see that David loved Amnon. That's uh, verse 21. And so you read that, you, you read that and you go, well, is this really love? You're talking about it as though it's love. I think maybe Amnon and David think it's love. But look, Amnon rapes his half-sister. David looks the other way. Is this love? Can't be. So see, the narrator is very cleverly using the familiar language, the familiar experiences of love, and challenging you to think about whether real love is anything like this at all. See, so it's counterfeit love. And actually, it's interesting that the Bible doesn't have its own language for lust. We do in English. We have a word for lust, but not in in Hebrew and Greek. And in fact, in the New Testament, the word that's most frequently used for lust, translated as lust, is the word, simple word for desire. And what you have to understand is that desire is a good thing. It's a good thing. Desire is a good thing. Like sex is a good thing. Whole book of the Bible dedicated to sex. I didn't want your kids to hear that. But Song of Solomon, you know, it's pornographic. It's beautiful because it's the gift that God has given us in our sexuality. And at the same time, love is a good thing. So the Bible can say that Jesus desires us. And it can say that we desire Jesus. And so that's a good thing. But sometimes, in some places, the scripture will use this word for desire To reflect the counterfeit kind of love that we call lust. Jesus, for example, in Matthew 5, 28, says if you look on a woman with uh, lust, our translation says, then it's the same thing as committing adultery. And what he means, he actually, what the translation says, if you look at a woman in order to desire. The goal isn't to love her. The goal is just to desire her. Then in your heart, you've engaged in Adultery. And what he's, so if I undress you in my mind, if I take you into my fantasy for the purpose of desiring you, then I'm not loving you. I've actually reduced you to an instrument of my own pleasure. I've absolutely dehumanized you in my mind. And, so I'm not loving you, and you're not loving me because you haven't given me any kind of consent. You haven't brought your desire to the party. This is just my desire wrapped in, curved back on myself. It's a party for one, and it doesn't help you, and it doesn't help me. And so that's, that's what Jesus talks about as lust. So Rebecca uh, 
de Young, in her book Glittering Vices, writes, In lust, my own pleasure is the goal. And I decide, and here, notice, notice the subject of the sentence, and I decide where to get it and when and with whom. My life revolves around my desires, wants, and needs. I disown my need for God's love or the love of others. I prefer to find my own delight, meet my own desire for satisfaction, to fill myself. Unlike one who risks depending on the love of another and who risks giving himself to another, the lustful one chooses to be autonomous, providing his good for himself. And guys, it's, it's us, but it's also those of us who are females as well. So the male pronoun flips both ways. So this is why it's so dangerous and why Frederick Buechner uh, writes that lust is the craving for salt of a person who's dying of thirst. Put that on your dashboard. Love is the craving for salt of somebody who is dying for thirst. It's counterfeit. It has the feeling of love, uh, but without the substance or the true satisfaction of love. So that's the definition, counterfeit love. Now let's look at the dynamic. How does lust work? And here's why it's important. We're not trying to focus here on our sins so much as on our Savior. But if you understand the dynamics of lust as the Bible portrays it, this will help you engage the, the Savior in the various stages. Because love is, uh, lust is progressive. And so I want to surface to you this progression that Amnon goes through. There are four phases to it. Hunger, hazard, hiding, and hatred. Let's just look at this because I think this is very true to our own experiences of lust, whether they're sexual or not. But lust begins with a hunger for love. Notice that Amnon asks for food to be brought. He has a hunger, but his hunger isn't for food, it's for love. And Tamar, though we're told she's beautiful, is not desired to bring the food so much as to be the food. You see what I'm saying? And interestingly enough, the narrator focuses on our eyes, which is oftentimes where our lust begins. Job, for example, he would say, I have made a covenant with my eyes. And what Job means by that is, I, I do see things that are desirable to me, but I leave it at that. That's the covenant with my eyes. It will go no further than my eyes. Jesus would say, if your eye offends... And John will speak of the lust of the eyes. And so we, we shouldn't be surprised that we find in this passage the narrator uses the words eyes over and over again. In our translation, you heard that my sight, his sight. That's the Hebrew word there is for, just the Hebrew word for eyes. And even in verse 2 where it says she, she, it seemed impossible to Amnon to do or anything to her or for her. That word impossible, it's, it seemed too great for his eyes. So immediately here as the story begins, the narrator is, is calling attention to his eyes. His eyes are the portals through which we can see the hunger of his heart. The next phase in the progression is hazard. The hungry heart pushes towards a hazard. And here's what's so interesting. Jonadab, his cousin, gives him this plan. But did you notice that Jonadab doesn't give the whole plan? In verse 5, Jonadab just says, here's what you can do. Lie down, ask the king to send Tamar. So, like, you go, well, and then what? And the interesting thing is, he doesn't have to say, and then what? Because the hungry heart will always know what to do with its opportunity. 
what we, you know, Amnon can say to himself, oh, I could do that. I could lie down. I do feel a little sick. That's kind of honest. And I, I would like to be with Tamar so I could ask for her presence. And there's nothing wrong with that, is there? There's nothing wrong with being with Tamar, right? There's nothing wrong with, you know, being sick and letting someone, your half-sister, care for you. There's nothing wrong with that. There's no law against that, right? And so what Jonadab has done is he's given Amnon just enough that's good in order for Amnon to fall into the hazard. The heart wants what the heart wants, Woody Allen famously said. And you know what? I would add, the heart knows how to get what it wants. So once the heart that's hungry is in the hazard, then it knows what to do with the opportunity. That's why Paul says in 2 Timothy 2.22 to to Timothy, flee youthful lusts. Don't present yourself with the hazard. Don't present yourself with the opportunity because we're not strong enough. And that's why, you know, we need to think about, well, there might be nothing wrong with being in the fraternity at midnight, but ask yourself, is it a good idea? And there might be nothing wrong with going to the mall when you're depressed, but again, ask yourself, is this prudent? Sure, there's nothing wrong with being in the house alone with your computer on, but is it a good idea for you? At the end of the day, when you're tired, it might be nice to stop in at the bar and say hi to your friends, but is that smart for you? Why is it that we want to ask the question, how far can I go? The pastors get this all the time. How far can I go? Instead of the answer, how can I keep it safe? How can I keep her safe? How can I keep myself safe? It's because the hungry heart will always push towards a hazard. Then the third dynamic is hiding. The hazard pushes Amnon toward hiding. Verse 6, we see that he pretended. He lies down, now he pretends. Because it's no longer safe to be who he really is. He's already gone too far. So he has to pretend to be somebody else. And again in verse 9, uh, this to me is, is haunting. He says, send out everyone from me. He, you know, he, and, and I think that's practical. He doesn't want to get busted. But I think it's also deeply suggestive of where we go when we're in our lust. Send out everyone from me. We cannot bear the company of other people who might present us with real love because we're working really hard on its counterfeit. And that's why Dietrich Bonhoeffer says sin demands to have a man by himself. Very dangerous place to be, but that's the only place he feels it's safe because he can't risk exposure at this point, so he hides. Then the fourth, the final uh, uh, progression in this dynamic is that the hiding place, being in that hiding place, pushes him towards hatred. Because now, when he's not within sight of anybody else who might love him or might counter his lustful self-centeredness, he does the unthinkable, he horrifies even himself. And this is so fascinating, that the ancient narrator has such psychological insight. In verse 15, immediately after reporting the crime... The narrator tells us, then Amnon was seized with a very great loathing for her. See where this goes. Immediately the crime is committed, and he hates her. Why would he hate her? I get it that she hates him, but why would he hate her? The reason is he hates himself. She's done nothing to him. He's done everything, and he knows it's wrong. He cannot tolerate himself, and he doesn't have an experience of grace Big enough to absorb. And so he hates himself. He deflects that hatred towards her. And I would suggest, as the story goes on, till his brief life comes to an end, he would be hating other people around him, even though he doesn't even know. So it would be, it, it, it would be 
bad news enough to tell you that there is this four-phase progression. If it were just linear. But the texts suggest to us it's cyclical. And that is my experience as well. That our hunger will only increase because of our self-hatred. If When we hate ourselves because of our shame, then we tend to continue to hide and push other people away and, and real love becomes more and more elusive and we don't dare take the risk of being exposed to someone who would really know who we are. And so we, we end up being more hungry, approaching other hazards, hiding even more and hating ourselves. So you see it's this downward spiral. It's so dangerous. But the good news is Grace intercepts the progression at any point. At any point. That's the disruption. So the question is how? How does the Savior disrupt these dynamics? And it's, and it's in a word, grace. Through his love. Through real love. Real love. And I want to encourage you today. I know this is a depressing text. But there's good news in it. And it's suggestive to me when you set it in the wider context of all of Scripture that it's about healing. There's an opportunity in Jesus Christ to find, for all of us to find healing. Jesus Christ is the Son of God who has come into time and space just as Tamar came into the house to be a healer. Now, Amnon trampled on Tamar, destroyed her humanity. And in the same way, God came to allow the people he loved, his beloved race, humanity, to trample on him on the cross of Jesus Christ so that he can heal us and that so we can be healed. So there is healing for the Tamar in us and the Amnon in us. And if you want to know where I see that in this story, look at verse 13. This is the moment when Tamar begins to open her mouth. She is painted by this narrator as an absolute heroine. She's a victim, but she's a heroine. And by the way, whenever you see a victim and a hero together, you're already being directed towards the cross. She speaks in two ways. She speaks to the one who is the son of David, and then she speaks to him as though he needed to recognize he were the child of the king. Amnon, of course, is the son of David. And if we've been reading this narrative in its context, in chapter 7, we'd have read of this great promise that God made to the son of David. And so this promise will not be fulfilled in the span of this story, but in the grand story, we'll find that the son of David is Jesus Christ. He's the one who mediates this promise to all of us. And when we find Jesus on the cross, we ought to understand that we find Tamar on the cross. Because Jesus so identifies with the victim, with the one who has been brutalized, with the one who has been absolutely abused, that in his innocence... He endures what Tamar had endured, a moment when God seems absolutely absent. Where is God for Tamar? Where was God for you when you were being abused? And now Jesus himself hangs on the cross as the victim. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's entered into our pain to heal it. And he is Amnon. Jesus is Amnon on the cross. The perpetrator, the oppressor, the abuser. He is bearing the penalty for Amnon's sin and for all of humanity's sin so that he can heal me and you. 
This is God's love. And when she speaks to the son of Amnon, it's the son of David, she's speaking to him as though he's a representative of Jesus Christ, whose name she doesn't yet know. And then the other thing to notice is that the way she speaks to him. She speaks to him as though he were the child of a king. And he is a child of a king. And you might not know that about Amnon. Amnon is the firstborn son of David. Amnon is the crown prince. He's a heartbeat away from being the king of all Israel. This whole kingdom belongs to him. And she calls it to his attention. Listen how she pleads with him. She just wants him to know what is him, what is his and his royalty. You could speak to the king, she says. Oh, Amnon, don't do this. If you were to do this, who would you be? You'd be as one of the scoundrels in Israel, verse 13. You'd be as nothing in Israel, but that's not who you are. You're everything in Israel. You're the king's son. Don't do this. I see, as as I read this, it's like the Holy Spirit coming alongside of me in the darkest hour of my temptation, absolutely despairing, wondering where God is, feeling absolutely unloved and unlovable, and I'm about to seize lust, thinking that it will give me an experience of love. And the Holy Spirit, the encourager, the comforter, as Jesus called him, says, don't do this. Do you know who you are? You're so loved. You're the beloved son of the king of heaven and earth. You have all the riches of heaven at your disposal. Speak to the king. That's God's love breaking in, breaking, disrupting this cycle. And it can happen at any point for you and for me. It can happen at the hunger as Jesus alone and his love is the bread of life and satisfies us when nothing else will. It could come at the hazard when Jesus, the good shepherd, sees us in a place of opportunity that won't go well for us. He will lead us through the valley of the shadow of death. We can find Jesus' love for us at that place of hiding when we think it's not safe to be who we really are with anybody. And he breaks in. He says, I know everything about you and I, but I love you completely. We can find it in Jesus' mercy, as we've been talking about, in the midst of our self-hatred, when he says, there is no condemnation for you. I don't condemn you, and I don't allow you to condemn yourself. See, this is grace breaking in with real love, the real thing. David Benner writes uh, in his book, um, The Gift of Being Yourself, about a pastor who struggles with sexual addiction. And he struggles with it, he confesses it, and then he goes right back. He says, this pattern that some of us know of confession and then regression again and again. And so he's going to resign. But as he's resigning, his bishop says, I want you to get some counseling with this Christian counselor. And Benner writes about this incident. He says, behind the sexual addiction, we discover a longing for intimacy. That's the real craving, intimacy. Not a reservoir of lust. Uh, Stuart's marriage provided as much genuine intimacy as he could tolerate, but in fantasy, he sought ways of experiencing intimacy that did not make the demands of him of a real relationship. And they discovered that Stuart had been a, a child of a family of six, and as a little boy, he felt overlooked And he was emotionally needy. He longed for and yet feared a loving embrace. And here's how Benner summarizes the opportunity for healing for Stuart, this pastor. He says, treated like the enemy, Stuart's sexuality had begun to function like the enemy. But once he accepted that he was not a sexual monster, just a normal male with normal sexual needs, his sexual needs seemed to recede in strength and prominence. Discovering our core sin tendencies is helpful because it lets us deal with our problems at their root. 
But even more than this, it's helpful because discovery of our core sin tendencies will inevitably fill us with such despair and hopelessness that we'll have no other option but to turn to God. Spiritual transformation does not result from fixing our problems. We've been saying that, haven't we? It results from turning to God in the midst of them and meeting God just as we are. Turning to God is the core of prayers. Speak to the king. I say. And then Benner concludes, turning to God in our sin and our shame is the heart of spiritual transformation. Do not try to clean your life up. Turn to Jesus and receive the abundance of love. As much as you can tolerate, the whole rest of your job description for the rest of eternity is to allow your heart to grow in its capacity to receive God's love. And and so you can do this too. You can turn to Jesus too. When Jesus, in his earthly ministry, was walking along a road that leads through Jericho, there was a blind man who called out to him and he said, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And then you know what Jesus said? One of my favorite parts of scripture. He said, what do you want me to do for you? If you will cry out to Jesus Christ this morning in your heart, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me, he will say back to you, what do you want me to do for you? This is the healer. With that man, he opened his eyes so that he, he could see. He touched him with his hand as Jesus so often touched. And, and this morning, Jesus will touch you too. It's just three ways that I want you to pay attention to Jesus' touch when you face lust. Your body, your heart, and your spirit. First, your body. Notice in this passage, Amnon was physically ill. He really was because we're psychosomatic beings. Fancy word for you live in a body. The Greeks would ignore that for them. The body was the problem, not the Hebrews, not those of us who affirm the incarnation. God took on a body to heal it. And you know, some simple things really help. Acknowledging your sexual urges as a gift from God, eating well, being rested, getting exercise, cherishing your body. That's what health looks like. And then it's not necessarily... Indulging all of your appetites, by the way. That's the lie. And then the second uh, place for invite God to touch is your heart. That place where you experience love, particularly human love. Really God's love through human beings. Because remember that the church is described as a body. It's a community. It's the body of Christ. It's where Christ's mercy is present to such a degree that it becomes safe to be who you really are. That's what I pray for UPC, that we could be safe being who we are with our failures, with our struggles, and yet feel embraced. Just as Kelly was saying she does with core group students. You're not alone. You're never alone. When, you, when you're faced with temptation to lust, you need to reach out and allow somebody else to be present to you. And then finally... Let Jesus Christ touch us in our spirits. Oh, by the way, you'll see that in this text through this language of my sister, his sister, her sister. The narrator is calling your attention that Amnon's not alone. He's in community, in a family. But also, my spirit. And here we have to let this royal spirit of Jesus Christ, whom the scripture calls the Holy Spirit, come and touch us in those deep places where we cannot reach ourselves. The Holy Spirit will bring forgiveness, will bring deep comfort, will bring encouragement, will bring satisfaction and ultimately healing in God's love. I want to close with a prayer and invite you to seek God's healing and to pray for others who are doing the same. But let me first remind you of the words uh, from 1 Corinthians 13. 
this great chapter on love. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we shall see face to face. Now I know only in part, but then I will know fully, even as I have been fully known. And now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. And the greatest of these is love. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we have been known completely. There's no part of us that you haven't embraced in your love. There's no part of us that you can't set free in your healing power. Hear our prayers. Your spirit searches our souls to find those places of brokenness that we might surface them now and set them before you and and cry out, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me and invite you to touch these places. Come and heal us. Give us faith, which is just taking your promises at face value. Give us hope, which is about living into that healing and walking in newness of life. But most of all, give us your love. And let us finally believe it and receive it. In Jesus' name, amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.